end of this series, there's a third part um, called Who Needs Christmas? And by the way, you can, you can watch them on Facebook uh, or listen on our website. We, we're streaming live right now on our, on our Facebook page at City Point Church, so you can do that and catch up. Uh, but Christmas is here. Come what may, it's here. And it happens, man, the same time every year. Go figure. You know, and whether we're ready or whether we're not ready, it comes. And so it's here and we're just a few hours away and we're told that we can now track, you know, Santa Claus with NORAD and all these kinds of things. How many of you, you do that? Oh, yeah, I know you're in a church meeting, but how many of you, you do that? Okay, well, I'll, I'll get you to be honest before the night's over, all right? Um, but we learned in the, in the first week that the, that the Christmas story, when you look into the pages of Scripture... Um, and you really, try to, you really try to get a picture of, of what's going on with Christmas. We saw that Christmas doesn't begin with a couple wondering how they got pregnant, right? Mary and Joseph, how did this happen? Uh, we, we tend to put Christmas in these little boxes and, you know, it's, well, it's, it's Mary and the manger and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds and maybe Herod the Great and... Bethlehem, and maybe we'll go as far as uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the cousin who had John the Baptist. And, but, but we need to go a little further than that. And we saw in the first week that Christmas really begins with a couple wondering if they ever will get pregnant. And that couple was Abram and Sarai, way back two millennia before the manger, um, you have this promise given to this man who has no children that he's going to have more children than the grains of sand and the stars in the sky and that they'll become a great nation and that nation will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And we, and we, we watched and you know, took a journey of 2,000 years of history to see that ultimately that promise was fulfilled even though it didn't look like it was going to be because of the miserable history and the problems and the problems. And that, that promise of blessing seemed more like a joke than a reality. But we saw that at just the right time, uh, Christ came. In the fullness of time, Paul says, God sent his son. So we learned, well, the nations of the world are blessed through Jesus. Uh, and through the son of Mary who would come. So we learned that the world needed Christmas, the nations of the world. And in this room, there's, I don't know, probably 80 people, maybe 75, 80 people. I would venture to say there's 25 to 30 nations represented in this room. That's really, really good. You should give yourselves a hand for not being born necessarily in North America, although that's good. How many of you were not born in North America? Raise your hand. How many of you were born in North America? Raise your hand. Okay, so, you know, maybe 60, 40, uh, but it's, it's a mixed bag. It's an all-dressed pizza, and this is because the nation's have heard the story of Jesus. And then last week, we saw, well, who else needs Christmas? Not only does the world need Christmas, but so does God. You say, well, how could God need Christmas? How does God have any needs? And we saw that, well, God needed a way to display, he needed to make a demonstration of his love for us. 
So we went back in time to answer it the first way. And then the second way, we went forward in time. We said, well, the, the, Jesus wasn't born just to be born. Jesus was born with a very specific purpose and mission. And he ultimately died for a reason. And so who needs Christmas? Well, God did. That is the ultimate demonstration of his love for us. And tonight we're going to answer it a third way. Uh, who needs Christmas? Uh, but for the answer to this question, we need to look right into the people's lives who experience the thing. Uh, not necessarily forward in time or backward in time, but right there in the, in the mind of these people in the first century Middle East. Okay, that's a long, long time ago. But I want you to see it through their vantage point. Now, I'm aware that there are those of you who are in the room and you're saying, you know what, like, Christmas story is really hard, tough pill for me to swallow. Uh, and maybe your, your whole picture and your whole perspective of the Bible is, well, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of fairy tales or maybe at best little things to teach us lessons about life. So I really have a hard time, you know, trying to look at this with any sense of reality. Can I just ask you tonight to try to give the benefit of the doubt to the people who wrote the story? So we're going to be looking at it mostly from, from Matthew, and it's just really a few verses that we're going to be looking at. But I want you to try to imagine, even if it's hard for you, that, that what he's saying actually happened. Because I know for some people that's a huge, huge stretch. So I want you to give him the benefit of the doubt as you, as you look at the Christmas story tonight. And I'll try and help you along the way. So Matthew chapter 1, and the, the nativity story is only in Matthew and only in Luke. You're not going to find it in Mark. You're not going to find it in John in the, in the Bible's New Testament. So I'm going to read a few ver verses from Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. All right, you with me so far? I know the Mary and Joseph betrothal part is easy. The pregnant by the Holy Spirit part is a stretch. But just stay with me, all right? Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, this would be the Jewish law, and he did not want to expose her to public disgrace... He had in mind to divorce her quietly. We'll pause there. Remember, you've got to put yourself back in the minds of these people. It's very, very clear that Matthew, the way that he's writing, he intends for the people who are reading to actually believe that this happened. It's clear that he's not writing it as if it's some fanciful sort of myth. He places it right in the real context of what happened, you know, 2,000 years ago. In that time... In that place, you must understand that relationships, courtship, marriage, sex, all of this stuff is in a, it is in a culture that's 2,000 years away in a land that is, it's not North America, it's, it's two millennia ago in the Middle East. Things were very, very different. It doesn't mean that there weren't relationships. It doesn't mean people weren't married. It doesn't mean they didn't have sex, okay? It's just the whole way that that whole thing was set up was a very, very different thing. This was a two-step 
thing. So we have a couple here who were told they're betrothed, and we told that there's a really unexplicable pregnancy. It's got a supernatural part to it. So what does all this mean? A Jewish betrothal and a marriage back then, it's a two-step process. All right. Um, first of all, couples were they, they it was arranged. So um, how many of you, you maybe you come from a, a, a cultural background where marriages tend to be arranged? Put your hand up. Not saying yours was arranged, but you come from that background. You know what that whole thing is like. There's more than one of you because I know the cultures and the nations, all right? So, so some of you, you come from, you come from a, a setting where maybe in the distant past or not so distant past, marriages were actually arranged. Now, most young people today, they don't, they don't, they don't want an arranged marriage. Uh, I'm of the opinion that an arranged marriage can actually work because I've seen enough non-arranged marriages not work. So I think that, you, you know, you can make it work whether it's arranged or it's not arranged. You still got to put the work in. You still got to make it work. But in any case, it was an arranged marriage. So it went like this. You had a betrothal that took place first. Betrothal is a fancy term. It means that when the girl was very, very young, we're talking 11, 12, 13, very, very young, already the parents of some guy would be having discussions with that girl's family about the future. Very, very young. You say, that is awful, that's crude. That's, I'm just telling you that's the way that it happened. I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm saying that's the way that it happened. And so there was a betrothal that took place when the, when the, the parents of a groom-to-be would say, okay, they'd, they'd make a little arrangement with the parents of a, uh, of a young girl, and they would say, well, when, you know, when the time is right, uh, we want these two to be married. And so what they would do is they would have like a little contract, if you will, that was formed at that point. And so they would, it was like a legally binding thing, and they would have a you know, cup of wine to, to kind of commemorate it. And legally speaking, at that point, those, that, that couple was legally married. Okay, they hadn't started living together yet. They still lived in, in separate homes in whatever town or village. In our case, it's Nazareth, right? As Jesus of Nazareth, have you ever heard that term? So that's where Mary and Joseph's parents would be. So there was a betrothal that took place. So up to a year after the betrothal, could have been longer, there would be an, a formal ceremony like a wedding. Now, I don't know, I can't tell you for sure what the age was of Mary and Joseph, but we're talking about teenager, young adult, adolescent, something in that arena would be, would be about what, we, what would have happened. Okay, so because we know from the ancient world that's the way that it happened. You say, wow, that's really, I'm just telling you that's how it happened. So up to a year later, the groom at an unannounced time would come, you know, waltzing into the village. Oftentimes it would be at night and he'd have his whole, you know, his groomsmen, if you will, and his whole entourage around him and he would come for his bride. And he had been preparing his house 
he lived in his parents' house, but he would usually, they would make like um, an extra room or an extra extension onto that house so that the new couple would live in that place. That's the way that it was in general back then. This is the way that, that, jo- that uh, Matthew is writing his story. So uh, the, he would come in, the groom and, and the, the bride would have to be anticipating about when this would happen. And then there would be this kind of formal celebration. And then the couple, I know this sounds a little strange and a little crude, but the couple would go off to a private room. In some, in some uh, uh, traditions, it's called a chuppah. Any of you know what a chuppah is? A chuppah is still around today. In Jewish weddings, the couple gets married under a chuppah. It's like a tent, okay? You ever been to a Jewish wedding? Oh, they have beautiful Jewish weddings, wonderful traditions in Jewish weddings. But back then, chuppah would, would be that place where the bride and the groom would go, and they would, well, for all intents and purposes, consummate their marriage, okay? I know there's kids in the room, but you can do the math on that one. And everybody would wait outside, And then they would come out and everybody would, yay, they're married. That's the way that it was. Okay, so here, here you have a very odd, very unusual thing is going on. Mary is pregnant. Um, So the way that they reacted is not the way we would react today. If today we had, uh, let's say, an engaged couple, and, uh, well, you know, the, the woman is pregnant, they would say, well, so what? You know, especially in Quebec, well, they're living together anyway, as most couples do in Quebec. And, well, okay, so she's pregnant, but we're still going to have a wedding. That's the way we would react today. The way that they would react back then would be the total total opposite so what went on there is that these two were betrothed and if you go and you look into Luke's gospel you will see that Mary's distant cousin Elizabeth who's who's a you know kind of a senior lady who's never had kids that her and her husband Zechariah couldn't have kids but Mary finds out that she's expecting and Mary finds out that she's expecting because an angel tells Mary this. We see this in Luke's gospel. And this same angel, Gabriel, tells Mary what's going to happen to her. And, and the angel says, listen, you, you need to know that your cousin is in her sixth month. She's going to start her third trimester for nothing is impossible with God. And so there's a visit that takes place where Mary runs over to the Judean hillside from Nazareth to the north. She's going to go down to Judea and she's going to go visit her cousin for three months. When she comes back to Nazareth, just before the birth of John the Baptist, she will run back to Nazareth and, uh uh-oh, she's expecting. So Joseph does the math and he says, well, we're betrothed. She goes off uh, for three months. She comes back. She's expecting. So what this would have been in the village of Nazareth, scandal. So couples did not cohabit. Couples did not, like, it was totally, totally forbidden. And they did, not, they did not do this thing of saying, well, let's sort of live together in every sense of the word before we're married. It was totally, totally foreign to, to the Jewish culture in the first century Middle East. Totally, totally foreign. So the obvious conclusion would have been, she's committed adultery. That's why she's pregnant. 
It's certainly not Joseph's baby, so she's committed adultery. So this is why we see the reaction from Joseph, and he's thinking to himself, oh, you know, he's a godly guy, but he does not want to subject his wife to public humiliation, or his, his wife, legally speaking at least, to public humiliation and to disgrace. So he thinks to himself, I'm going to go find a way, visit a priest, do something to divorce her quietly and go on my way because I, it, it, she will be shamed. She's already being shamed. There's actually um, a, a good movie that you may want to watch, you know, in the coming days. It's a bit old now, probably about 10 years old. It's called The Nativity Story. And this movie does a really good job of showing what Nazareth would have reacted like uh, and how they would have reacted to, to, that's a picture from the poster, I think, uh, what they would have reacted, how they would have reacted to her when she came back. It's actually quite well done, this, this film, and uh, you, should, you should watch it over the coming days if you want to. So she comes back to Nazareth. She's pregnant. The conclusion would be she committed adultery. I need to find a way out to not hurt her. So you have a really dramatic, scandalous situation because you have an inexplicable pregnancy. So right away, you're looking at the Christmas stories. Okay, I got to deal with angels. I got to deal with, you know, a senior couple that gets pregnant. They get pregnant the old-fashioned way, but certainly assisted by God somehow. And now I've got to deal with this, this virgin birth thing. So let me just try and help you, those of you who are in the room, you say, it's just so hard for me to swallow this stuff. Like, how can you be so, so silly as to believe in these kinds of things and miracles and these angels and it's a fanciful tale? Okay, let me just, let me just help you with this. Um, the Bible clearly, clearly and boldly presents a worldview that quite simply... Uh, nothing, everything that we see and experience is not explained purely by everything that we see and experience. So the Bible does clearly support the idea that there is a supernatural. Clearly, right from the first verse of the thing, in the beginning, God created. So you see all over the place in the Bible, you see all kinds of things. You see the miraculous, you see the supernatural, you see all these things. This is because the Bible boldly says this, that everything that we experience in life, it cannot be explained purely by natural things. Maybe you're in this room and you're a pure naturalist. Say everything has a natural cause. It's a natural explanation, whatever. Okay, just let me explain to you, just to try and help you maybe widen your understanding a bit. The leading theory that you will learn in high school, college, university, the leading theory of cosmologists and astronomers, the leading theory of where all of this came from is out of nothing. Do you know that? The leading cosmological theory is that we came from nothing. <laughs> out of nothing came something. Now, we try to say, well, how can that happen? And people try and say, well, there must be a way around that to have no, not, no divine intervention to start the whole thing. But this is the leading cosmological theory that you will learn regardless of religious view. This is the most accepted theory of origins. It all came from nothing. Billions of years ago, in a moment, 
that starts with two B words. Do you know those B words? The Big Bang. Okay, now you say, what are you doing talking about the Big Bang on Christmas Eve? What, what are you, you, you believe in the Big Bang? I didn't say that. All I'm saying to you is the number one accepted theory in academia, in astronomy, everywhere in astrophysics, everywhere in cosmology, is that something came from nothing. And so many people, they say, well, you know, maybe there's some sort of being that popped the thing into existence. So one person has said it this way, a big bang requires a big banger. Uh, well, it's kind of, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, there has to be, well, how can something come from nothing? Well, if something comes from nothing, maybe a miraculous pregnancy is possible. So if matter can originate from non-matter, maybe there's an immaterial source to the matter that was somehow popped into existence. Um, so, so you need to understand how significant that is. So for many, many, many years, even up to the modern age, many people thought that the universe was an eternal thing. Even Carl Sagan said, the cosmos is all that was and all that is and ever will be. Now we believe that he was wrong. And we believe that the universe, that the cosmos had a beginning. That's, that's a relatively new thought. In the ancient world, they didn't really believe this. Even in the modern world, it's... You know, okay, you say, well, it's a couple hundred years old maybe, but that's relatively new to say that the universe actually had a beginning. Isn't it interesting? First verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just food for thought for you, okay? The Bible presents a world where everything that's here can't be purely explained by naturalism. It presents clearly that there's a supernatural. You're dealing with a supernatural pregnancy here. Oh boy, high drama in Nazareth. <laughs> What's this guy going to do with this woman? Like, she's pregnant, it's not his. What's he gonna... so, so he's considering a quiet divorce. And he doesn't want to hurt her. He doesn't want to shame her. So he's thinking about this. And the text continues, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord, I know, I know, I know, but give the writer the benefit of the doubt just for these moments. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her, it's from the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural pregnancy that you are dealing with. There's no man. She, she was not unfaithful. It is a supernatural pregnancy. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Just stop there for a moment. The name Jesus, and I mentioned this last week, was a very common name. Often in church circles, we talk about the name of Jesus as if, it, as if he was the only one who was named Jesus in the ancient world. That is totally not true. It was a very, very common name. But there is a significance to the name. Jesus is a kind of an anglicized transliteration of a Greek word, a Greek name, and that's Jesus. We say Jesus in our English Bibles. And the, the, the name Jesus is a translation of a Hebrew word, 
that we also kind of anglicize. The anglicization is Joshua. Any Joshua's in the room here? We got a few Joshua's in the church. So Joshua is actually closer to the name of Jesus than the name of Jesus is. Just to wrap your head around that. So Joshua is a, is a kind of a transliteration, an anglicization, if you will, of the word Yeshua, which is really, the, that, that's, that's Jesus' name. Now, why is that significant? Well, because Joshua in the Old Testament, if you, if, you, if you go back there, you see that Joshua was a successor to Moses. Moses led the people out of Egypt, was to go into the promised land, and he didn't make it. Him and a whole generation died in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Joshua takes a new generation into the promised land. He's a military man. He's a conqueror. He's to go into the land of Canaan and take the land of Canaan. Uh, so Joshua is to be the name of your boy, Joseph. This is very significant for Joseph to hear because they were waiting for a Joshua for a long time, the Jewish people. They were waiting for a Savior. They were waiting for a Messiah who would deliver them from oppression once and for all, who would gather their people who were scattered around the world back to the land of Israel, who would reign at the temple, and so on. So she will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus or Joshua because he will save his people from their sins. Okay, you, 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 this is really strange. If you're Joseph and you're listening to this, you're like, Okay, I'm dealing with a, with a with a pregnancy. This is okay, uh, but it's from the Holy Spirit. Okay, okay. Uh, she will give birth to a son. Okay, maybe he's thinking that's better than a girl. You know, back then, maybe he would be thinking that. Sorry for all the girls in the room. You are to give him the name Joshua. Right away, he's thinking to himself, Joshua. This is, the, this is a military name. Is this the Messiah? This would be maybe the question that's floating around in Joseph's mind as he's having this experience with this angel, the, the, the Mashiach. Is it him? Because, wow, you've got a son of David. You've got a, a boy. You've got the name is important because he will save his people. Yes, he's going to deliver from the Romans. I mean, we had to deal with the Egyptians. And when we got out of there, we went into Canaan, but we didn't do such a good job in Canaan. And, you know, we sort of half established ourselves. And then our nation fell into a civil war because of our own problems. And then we had to deal with the Assyrians. And then we had to deal with the Babylonians. And then we had to deal with the, the Greeks, and then we had to deal with the Seleucids, and then we had to deal with the Romans. So maybe, maybe, maybe he will save his people from their sins. Okay, 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 angel, angel, th that's really not a felt need right now. Okay, we need deliverance from oppression. We need deliverance from Rome. Angel, angel. Don't you know that we have a really good save yourself from sin system already? 
Don't you know that we have a, like a temple and a priesthood? And, you know, we have like the most elaborate sacrificial system in the ancient world compared to everybody else. Like, what, what do you mean? Save from their sins. And the writer Matthew goes further. and He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is from Isaiah 7 and 14, which means God with us, as we saw last week, Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. So the, Matthew is justifying this thing from a supposed prediction that took place, it was written 700 years before. Please understand. To us, the, the idea of a virgin birth, and virgin birth is, you know, that technically what that term means, at least to Roman Catholics, is it also suggests the perpetual virginity of Mary, uh, virgin birth. Uh, that's not, when you look into the pages of the New Testament, it's quite clear, you can see it in the following verses, that Joseph took her home to be her, his, uh, his wife, and he had no union with her until she gave birth to his son. And we can see in the Gospels that Mary and Joseph had other children. We even have some of their names there. So this idea of a perpetual, you know, virginity of Mary, you can't really sustain this when you look into the Gospels. But this idea of a virgin birth, or we can say virginal conception. So she conceived, you know, in a purely supernatural way. There's no, there's no man. How many of you know that men have this thing called an X chromosome and a Y chromosome? Did you know this from your, your biology? It's amazing. You don't have to know biology to have babies. But men, you have an X chromosome, a Y chromosome, and women, you have an X chromosome and an X chromosome. So you've only got the two of the same, but the male, he has an X and a Y. So you see, who determines the gender of the baby at conception? It's the male. It's not the female, because she's only got two Xs. Did you know this? Back to your, high, your elementary school biology, your high school biology. So how, how is it possible that you got a boy in there when there's no chromosome to, for the boy? Like, how's that, you know, how's that work? You, you, you need to understand that this virgin birth thing, although we, we sing about it in churches and it's a staple to our theology, and it's a very significant thing the virgin birth, because what we have when we, when we look at the nature of Jesus, when we look into the Bible, we try to inspect what is the nature of Jesus, kind of what's he made of, who is he, what we see is that he's God and man at the same time, and that, that implies that he doesn't have any sin. He doesn't have the problem that you and I have. Uh, you and I have inherited a spiritual problem. We have a predisposition toward transgression. But Jesus didn't have that. And the virgin birth suggests that. But this was not, was not, was not an expectation at the time. The way that Matthew takes this verse from Isaiah 7:14 and applies it to this idea of this virgin birth is not how the people understood the, the, the interpretation of that passage. Why is that so significant? Well, because the way that the Jewish people would have reacted to this thing would have been, that's weird, like we didn't expect that at all. That's not in the Bible. That Matthew is playing with this verse, like this, we, this, took people completely by surprise. It was not an expectation. 
And it certainly is not an expectation today either. If you talk to conservative Jewish people, it actually makes the story more plausible and more believable because it's coming out of left field. To a Jewish person, to hear about a virgin birth, they would be thinking of paganism. They would be thinking of Zeus, you know, conceiving with some human and out, out pops, you know, Alexander the Great or whoever. They would say, this is a pagan thing. I don't like this. Like, they, they, they would have real issues with this. And it kind of makes the story more plausible today even. And maybe, maybe you've wondered this if you're a church person. Today, the Jewish people, and I know because I'm one of them, the Jewish people reject Jesus as their Messiah. You say, how could they do that? Have they not read their own Bible? Duh. You know, I've talked to Christians and they say that. They say, how can they be so? They're supposed to know it. They're the ones who it came from. How can they reject Jesus as their Messiah? Well, let me tell you why. Number one, because the temple was destroyed within a generation of Jesus' death. So in the year 70, the Romans took the temple. It has never been rebuilt. They destroyed the city and the temple violently, never been rebuilt. That's not what messiahs do. He did not deliver them from Roman oppression, which was the expectation that they had. And he did not regather the people back to Israel, which was also the expect expectation that they had. And today, they will say the same thing. They will say, Jesus is not our messiah. In fact, he's an imposter. Temple destroyed. People not regathered, Rome not conquered. Sorry, three strikes and you're out. <laughs> That's what they say. So if, you, if you're Joseph, you go back to Joseph now. And if you're Joseph and you're hearing this and you're seeing this save their sins. So, you know, the picture on the screen there from the movie, uh, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. Why is he saying from their sins? Why is it that even today, if we're being honest, most of us are not particularly moved by this? We're not really jumping up and down at this passage from their sins. It kind of comes and goes. And for Joseph, it would have raised certain questions because it suggests a number of things, right? They have this elaborate system. You go and you do the research as to all the other religious views that were in the general area, the general geographical area there. I'm telling you, the whole setup with the law and the temple, the sacrificial system was, it was very, very advanced and very, very detailed. And compared to the other things that were going on in different religious views at the time, it was highly advanced. So why do they need, what is this saved from their sins? Um, this suggests that that system that they had was somehow not good enough. It was somehow insufficient. But why is it that today we're not moved by this statement? If we're being honest, it kind of comes and goes. This is, this is why. Because in our kind of understanding of Christianity, when we hear and we read this text, he will save his people from their sins. This is kind of what we hear. We hear, well, nobody's perfect, but God forgives. I'm not perfect, but God forgives. I sin, but thank God he forgives. He's a forgiving God. He's a loving God. If I go down to minus 10 on the sin scale, he can bring me right back up to zero. Thank God he forgives. Praise God, he forgives. God is good all the time. Thank God he forgives. Nobody's perfect, but God forgives. Can I just tell you that that is such a shallow understanding 
That is such a narrow little understanding of what that passage means. And I think in the modern age, in the, in the church today, particularly in the North American context, but even, even in many parts of the world, here's what we have done to Christianity, what we've done to the story of Christmas and you know, answering this question, who needs Christmas? We have, if we're being really honest, we have kind of adjusted Christianity. We've kind of metamorphosized it a little bit. We've kind of played with it a little bit. And we have transformed it into a religion that benefits us. So it's good for me to be a Christian. It will make my life better <laughs> to be a Christian. And so it's beneficial. It improves my life to be a Christian. And we do this in, in generally two specific ways. In general, sometimes it's more, but in general, it's two ways. You know, I always balk a little when I, when I hear Christians talk about materialism and Christmas. And they get all bent out of shape and they say, look at this horrible materialism. This isn't the reason for Christmas. Jesus is the reason for the season and all this other stuff that we say. I always am careful when I hear Christians say that because some of them are so materialistic who say that. So materialistic. So God will give me material. God will give me wealth. God will benefit me in that way. And God will also give me health. He'll give me wealth and he'll give me health because it benefits me to be a Christian. And we have all kinds of books and, I mean, media like you wouldn't believe that basically presents a Christianity that is for your personal individual benefit, even in a material sense, even in what seems to be like, that's it? Listen, show me a God, show me a religion that's going to benefit me personally, materially, and maybe health-wise, and show me a God who's going to change my life. I'll tell you which one I'm going to take, the one that's going to change my life, not the one that's necessarily going to benefit me, perhaps make me more wealthy, perhaps make me more healthy. No, this Joshua that was born to Mary, this Joshua will save people from their sins. How many of you know that sin is a powerful thing? Ask an addict and they will tell you that sin is powerful. Ask a person who's addicted to opiates, which is pandemic, uh, certainly across the United States and in parts of Canada. Ask them if sin is powerful and they'll say, oh, yes, it is. And there are many of you in this room and you have things in your life that you cannot stop doing. You can't. You try, you buy self-help books, and there's nothing wrong with self-help books. They're great, no problem with self-help books. But oftentimes, more and more self-help books keep being written, perhaps because they're not working the way we want them to work. And so we'll try some more, because there's things in our life that we do that we say, I, it seems to have a power and an ability that circumvents me somehow. 
Ask the person who struggles with their temper. Ask the person who's, who's proud and arrogant and lustful. Ask the person who's hooked on prescription drugs. Ask the person who's an alcoholic. Ask a person who can't stop looking at, at porn. Ask a person who says, I, I can't stop gambling. Ask a person who, and you will see that, wow, sin is powerful. And maybe some of you, you don't believe in sin. You say sin is the idea of right and wrong. What's right for you is wrong for me and all that stuff. You know what I say to the person who says I don't believe in sin? Uh, let someone cheat on them, steal from them, lie to them, and maybe they'll start believing in sin. <laughs> they might say, wow, I didn't like that. Why didn't I like that? Well, because there was something moral there that was crossed over. And it bothered you and it made you angry because it was wrong. And so we have a problem, the Bible is very bold in declaring this, that we have a problem with sin. This is our problem. Our problem isn't that we don't have enough money. Our problem isn't that we don't have enough health. Our problem is that we have a sin issue and it is powerful and something needs to stop it. What will stop it? We don't know, but it is the problem of humanity it's a sin problem this is what the bible is trying to say at the end um, uh, in just a few minutes when we conclude we're going to give every one of you hopefully but at least 40 of you we're going to give this little book uh, called the case for christmas and there's a little christmas card in here uh, from a dear friend of mine and hopefully you'll enjoy this but you'll see this idea in this book and even in this card the real message of Christmas is that there is a Joshua powerful enough to save you from sin's power. Oh, is that exciting. If you understand how powerful sin is, if you're honest with yourself and you say, you know what, there's something inside of me that predisposes me to cross the line. Just ask parents who have young kids. What do you say? Don't cross this line. You cross this line, there's going to be consequences, my son, my daughter. You ever done that with your kids? You don't walk across this line. What do they do every single time? They cross the line. They cross the line, don't they? And no matter how loud you say it, you can scream it at the top of your If you cross that line, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of this world. <laughs> No matter what you say, you know what they do? Especially when you're not looking? Cross the line. Why? Because there's something on the inside that predisposes us to cross the line. And this is our problem. This is the problem, friends, with humanity. This is why we need Christmas. It's that there is someone powerful enough to save you from sin's power. And that's an internal thing. That's a mental thing. That's not necessarily a physical thing. That's a spiritual thing. That's the Savior that we're talking about. I'm not saying that God doesn't bless people. I'm not saying that God doesn't heal people. We pray for people to be healed all the time. I pray for people to be blessed all the time. I'm not saying He doesn't do that. I'm saying the primary reason for Christmas is not that. The primary reason for Christmas is that we need a Savior from our sin. It's us who has that problem. It's humanity that has that problem, the problem of sin. Paul would put it this way, uh, writing to the Romans. He would say, the wages of sin is death. 
Wow. Just stop there for a second. So to put it in non-theological terms, sin always kills something. Maybe you've had it kill a relationship that you were in. Maybe you've had it kill your financial situation. Maybe you've had it kill trust. Maybe it's, it's self-destructive and that's how it's killing. But it always makes you pay. It always makes you pay. It's never a giver. It's a taker. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, here it is. Who needs Christmas? The gift of God is eternal life. My friends, he doesn't take you just back up to zero. He takes you from minus 10 to plus 10. He gives you the ability to walk free from the power of sin. Not necessarily the, even the consequences of it. Our prisons are filled with people who are living the consequences of their sin, yes? And many of those people have cried out to God for forgiveness, and yet they're still facing the consequences from their sin. It's not even the consequences that God takes away, although sometimes he can, but it's the power of sin, where you can live a life where you can say, uh-uh, not taking the bait. Temptation comes, nope, I'm not taking the bait. I'm not going to steal that money. I'm not going after that boy or that girl. Uh-uh, I can walk free from booze and drugs and all, the, all these problems with that walking over the line. Now I have the ability to be free from sin. That, my friends, is why we need Christmas. But the gift of, of God is eternal life where you can walk without the shackles and the power of sin over your life. And now you can be free. And this is why we need Christmas in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So who needs Christmas? The world did. Who needs Christmas? God did. Who needs Christmas? We do. We do so badly. Anyone is a candidate who recognizes, hey, sin is powerful and it has got me. It has got me and I need something that is more powerful than it. Something that will set me free from this thing or, or this way that I can't stop living. This thing that I can't stop doing. This thought that I can't stop thinking. Whatever it is, I need something more powerful than any self-help book. I need, you know what you need? You need Joshua. You need Joshua who will save you from your sin.